go out to North Carolina, you're going to get smoked by the 970 league players. And they think I'm joking. And I'm like, you guys have no yeah. idea that those players are on the 5,700 foot wooded courses. But those players go to, hey, if those players go play against you in Oklahoma or Kansas, they're getting smoked, right? Different game. Absolutely. And and without showcasing those different those different qualities, you really aren't showing a well-rounded game. If, if you're going to be the world champion, you should be able to play more than one course once yeah. a day for three days and get a title. It would be like, you would almost like ball golf, where you would have two different courses going the first day, and then you would switch courses, and then a cut. That way you could have more players, too, and that makes more sense to have so that you could have even more than 120 players. Hi, I'm Johnny McCray. I'm Scott Stokely. I'm Ron Chambers. I'm Brian Schwaberger. And I'm Greg Hosfeld, and you're listening to the Chain Clinkers Podcast. Welcome in everyone to the Shane Clinkers Disc Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Ferris, here with part two of our conversation with Johnny McRae, Scott Stokely, Ron Converse, Brian Schweberger, and Greg Hosfeld. If you listened to the last episode, we are going to be jumping back into our conversation about pay-to-play disc golf. Is it good? Is it bad? What would it take for a course to be worth paying to go out and play? So if you haven't listened to the last episode, it's an absolute must listen. Make sure you go check it out before jumping into this one we're also going to be talking about the pro worlds and some improvements and maybe maybe just you know how we can improve the worlds and other things in disc golf you're going to want to make sure you stay tuned through the end because everyone is going to give their top tip for getting better as a disc golfer so you're going to want to make sure you stay tuned for that make sure you leave that like rating if you're watching on youtube as well as hit that five star rating on apple Podcasts and spotify we appreciate all that you guys are doing but without further ado let's go ahead and jump back into our conversation so when i'm looking at amenities for a a pay-to-play the first place that i would go with that is i'm looking for topography I want to be able to play something interesting that I don't see normally around my home. Now, a lot of places are flat. As I travel around, I, I see big mountain pushes where you've got giant vistas and you can see for miles and throw. And those are cool, but the throws you usually get are either a grand scale or else you're going uphill or else it's flat. And the ones I think are more interesting are the ones that are on smaller a smaller scale mountains or Green Mountain was one that I thought was really nice up there in Vermont. The most interesting place I've seen so far that I, I drive by and I say, oh my God, I want to build a course there is a reclaimed place where they went and strip mined and then put the land back and it's full of little ponds and little rises and they're all short. They're like two, 300 yards long tops and that you have to negotiate. Those kind of places would be absolutely phenomenal because the amount of diversity you could get would be incredible. Whereas if I go to a place in the Great Plains, they're looking at, well, say I go to Kansas City, okay? Obviously, the old school going to the hill in Kansas City isn't nearly as impressive as it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because we've got all the new courses that are featured all over the United States and have their own thing. I played uh, some pay-to-play events at uh, Worlds. We played Black Falcon. 
up in uh, Michigan Worlds. And it was a, a beautiful course that had a lot of different types of trees and the, the real tight thickets. And then you'd go into uh, old fashioned or old stand uh, hardwoods and stuff like that. And it, it just was, it was interesting to see. I got, while I was up there, I got to play another private course called Bluegill, which was uh, a place owned by Joe Gill. Very nice little place, lots of different shots, some elevation changes, ponds. You know, if you don't have challenges, it's not going to be nearly as interesting. That's the first part. Locally, Scott Stokely knows about the lodge. It's a pay to play. They, they charge, I think, five bucks a head to come out and play until you're tired of playing. It's a, a nice place. It's got a, a variety of shots. And for around here, it's, it's an exceptional venue. They don't have a clubhouse. They, they do have places where you can come out and uh, set up your, you know, the hookups to, to camp and all that. And during tournaments and all, they'll have uh, a clubhouse open that'll have food and drink and a nice warm place if it's cold or a cold place when it's warm. And, you know, um, it's a little different, but I don't know of, of any other amenities that feature front and center more than having an interesting place to play. That's, that seems like no matter where you go, that's what I want to see. I'm not going to go somewhere that I could go to a public course that's more interesting and play if I'm right there. So I, I don't know. What about you guys? You're, you're new to the sport. What would draw you in? Some nice cut grass in the summer. I don't know. That's that's a start for me, man. I'll tell you what. When when you're out there and the grass is almost to your knees, there is nothing more infuriating. Um, but I, I don't know. You know, the more that I think about it, the more hearing you guys talk about it, I, I think that something that would get me to go spend my money is just kind of what you were hitting on there, Ron, is something that's interesting, something that is not going to be like going 10 minutes down the road and going to the closest course that I have. So when, when I kind of think of that, you know, I'd like to see some water carry shots. I'd like to see some interesting greens. That's not the exact same thing. Elevated baskets, hanging baskets, maybe kind of what we were talking about earlier. Maybe, you know, half the basket is big on one side. The other half is not as big. Maybe there is some more of those sand traps or artificial OB or something that provides a little bit of a challenge. You know, I, I want to be able to walk away feeling like, I can't shoot 15 down. I don't want it to necessarily feel like it's a birdie or die kind of course. I want to be challenged. I want to, you know, if I, if I hit par, then it's like, yeah, you know, that was pretty, pretty gosh darn good. Cause this is a tough little course. Uh, I also do think that to a certain degree, having that pro shop is important because if I do, if there is water and I do inevitably lose a disc, I would like the opportunity to go replace it right then and there, as well as, you know, if I'm just going out with the boys trying to have a good time, then, you know, if, if they've got some, some nice drink selections, then I'm going to be about that. That's going to make me want to go there even more. And something else that I don't see as being very feasible, but you'll see a lot of these young kids out on, on the pro tour right now going to top golf all the time, which is, you know, if you've never heard of top golf, it's literally just like a, I don't know. I don't know what a good way to describe it is. It's driving just a range. driving range. Yeah. Driving range. Yeah. It's literally a driving range with food, drinks, 
Uh, you can play different little games, I guess. Like if they had something like that for disc golf, I think that would also be pretty fun. That's probably not as feasible, but I don't know. Those are kind of my thoughts. Ratio, what do you got? No, you know, I think all that stuff is great. Definitely, you know, the excitement of playing something that you're not used to. I mean, we're from Wichita, Kansas. So, you know, a lot of the courses here, the most popular one in town is Oak Park because, you know, majority of it is around a river. So, you know, there's water hazards, there's some trees, so it's in a park. So that's that's the one that people flock to the most. And the one besides that and maybe tied is, you know, the one out west, Colwich West. Because it's literally one of the areas around town that has the most trees in one spot. So, you know, they put a course there, so it's a lot of fun. And now we have two courses there. So, you know, I think there's something there as far as challenge and something you're not used to seeing because we definitely have some courses out here that people that aren't from Kansas, if they came out and played, they would be very, very upset and maybe leave after three holes because they're just wide open. There's nothing out there. Like you're just, you're just throwing at a empty basket. Like (laughs) it's, it's more of, yeah, it's not very fun. So there's definitely something to that. But yeah, I think amenities, people can't play in every season. Not everyone is on tour, you know, so you can't go to Florida. You can't go to Arizona. So I think something to keep people active during the winter, you know, during those seasons when you can't do stuff. So I think having, I think it would be really cool to have some kind of a building or something where you could go and practice putting or do putting leagues, or even, you know, you have local pros who you know they could rent out let's say a lane and you know they can do lessons for amateurs like all right we're going to rent out these lanes at this at this building or this warehouse and do lessons for amateurs or stuff like that you can go practice your form but yeah no i think pay to play is definitely the future i think it will be very interesting to see and i think one thing you know i'm not super worried about is disc golf is very open to everybody just an example, Brody Smith came in, uh, Paul McBeth, I don't know his name, but Paul McBeth is constantly playing with that professional baseball player. Disc golf is something that is inviting to everyone. So I think we will see, you know, just random people, you know, people with money, people with land, people with connections to other people. So I think there's an endless possibilities of where courses can be put in how many, you know, people that have the money to put in warehouses where you can do like a driving range or stuff like that. I think it's just a matter of continuing to grow, continuing to invite people. But I think we've talked a little bit enough about that, you know, pay to play. I'd like to move on a little bit, you know, talk a little bit more about your guys' experiences, you know, with new, this new era disc golf, ton of people coming in. I'm interested to see, you know, what are some things that you guys see changing in the sport that you don't like some stuff that, you know, you've seen in this last season or whatnot that you're like, you know, that's not disc golf community. You know, we shouldn't go down that way. The one thing I don't like what I'm seeing right now is that tournaments sell out in four minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't have a fast browser or internet connection, you lose. Sometimes it's difficult to get into events that you've played for years. And, uh, you know, but that's, it's a good problem to have in that, you know, it, it shows that the game is absolutely blowing up. So it's hard to begrudge that, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people are kind of left out. Yeah, I'm out. Ago, uh, that's we had a, lot of, a lot of tournaments in my area are switching from having AM weekends and pro weekends. So 
we don't we're not having to worry about that up here in North Carolina so much as far as that goes. Yeah, I think that's a good way to go. Can't remember his name, but he just wanted to go and play all the events. And he was sort of a phenomenon that you see, and I think they even passed a rule limiting how low your rating could be before you could get into the events now because of it. I think that the future of the sport's going to be qualifiers so that if I want to play an A tier, I would have to be able to show my proficiency to get in and play that A tier competitively. Uh, if I want to play, you know, a pro tour, I'm going to have to play an A tier and show by, by placing in the top third or whatever that I was able to, you know, compete. And I, I think that's where we're going to end up eventually going. Because like Greg said, I, there's enough events that I've played, I've won, I, I play all the time. At least once a year, I'll go down to Tyler and play. This year, I missed the, uh, the timing. I was busy doing something of the evening. And by the time I looked up, it was full. And I'm number six on the wait list. So that's uh, becoming just the norm anymore. If you don't have somebody, maybe I could hire somebody to sit there and push the button, you know, anytime one of my tournaments is opening up. But it, that seems sort of a, a silly way to go about it rather than requesting that there's qualifiers or something like that. Yeah, Ron, I have my alarm set for 7.58 p.m. every day on my phone because most tournaments open up at 8 o'clock. If they're going to have registration for that day. <laughs> yeah. What's another? What's another way to fix that? What's something else that can be done so that you know that's not an issue? More tournaments. I, I think it's more like what Brian said, where they switch it to where you're uh, having AM weekend and a pro weekend. And I know that uh, down here in Florida, at the course that Greg started at uh, Grand Canyon, now they're doing four weeks this year. They're having an, an intermediate weekend, an amateur weekend, a pro weekend, I think, the, and a rec weekend. So there's four different weekends. So, I mean, and that tournament fills up every all four all four weekends are full already. And they were full second day it was start, they opened. So maybe that would help, which is kind of different for disc golf. Like you were saying, should we go down that path? Then it just kind of separates everybody where you don't, the amateurs wouldn't get to see the pros unless they came out to watch. You know what I mean? You're not, we're not going to be at the same venue at the same time, which is going to change things a little bit, but that's what it's going to have to go to, to get everybody in. And I the pro like tour, the, they do uh, have the pro tour card, which will get you into tournaments before anybody else. And, you know, so that's kind of elite there, but uh, so it's kind of hard. I know that, uh, Scott hasn't been on the pro tour yet. So I'm, I know that he's having, and hopefully he gets into all the events that he wants to this year, but uh, you know, he might get shut out of a couple because he has, doesn't have a pro tour card, but he's out there wanting to do it. So it's a, uh, you know, two-sided sword, I guess. Yeah, I, I got, I actually, the good news is I got everything taken care of on my end, but there were hoops to jump through and sponsorship and there's, you know, it was, I, I went into the season thinking I was going to be getting on wait list every single time. Uh, but fortunately I get to play all the DGPTs. Uh, I still, all the eight tiers, I still got to sign up like everybody else, but, but I, I managed to, uh, that got taken care of. You know, people, 
<laughs> well, uh, you know, I, hopefully, you know, I'm, I know a lot of people aren't going to be able to pull that and be able to pull strings like that, but uh, I'm glad you did. But uh, <laughs> some, of, yeah. some of the younger guys that don't have a name or something like that, you know, might not be able to do that. But uh, it's, a, you know, it's a thing just for the, even the pro tour, you know, getting in there, even though we have, there's like 120 people in Vegas, 120 MPO players in Vegas, which that's huge. So I have one suggestion that is, it's not a very popular one. It goes against 40, what, 46 years of our sports culture. But I think that tournament directors or the club or whoever else is running the tournaments should be paid to do so. And I would have no problem with a percentage of entry fees and a percentage of sponsorship money going to tournament directors. The idea would be that would create more tournaments when all of a sudden a club says, hey, we could raise four grand for our club running a tournament. And I think it would incentivize more sponsorship because if you're financially motivated to bring in sponsorship money because you're going to put some in your own pocket, I think you generate more money by paying tournament directors at tournaments. Uh, but our sport has to fight decades of you're making money at Frisbee golf. You're the devil. <laughs> I mean, it's changing, but there's that, right. But I, I think that would be, you know, again, the free market kind of would let things sort themselves out. I mean, it, 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 I think you're a hundred percent correct there because the more money you can bring into the sport, the more opportunity there is for somebody to run a tournament, the more tournaments will be ran. It, it almost, it kind of clicked in my head of way, 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 way back in the day when football was almost looked as if you went and played in the NFL or whatever the professional league was at the time after college, then you were a degenerate. You were somebody who wasn't going to, to the corporate world. You were, you were lesser than you shouldn't be making money by playing football. And now look at, you know, you look at football, that's some of the richest dudes out there nowadays. So I feel though you're hitting the nail 110% and hopefully the new wave of folk coming into the sport are able to kind of transition that because I, I, I agree that a lot of people in the sport deserve to get paid for everything that they do. You know, course designers deserve to get paid volunteers and those who are helping run tournaments deserve to get paid. All of those things need to happen. I just think we need to continue to normalize that and get that to a place of reality. And as far as uh, players that weren't on the tour last year and trying to get in for this year and for future tours, they could start having a qualifying school. Absolutely. That's exactly what should happen. The goal should be you want to go out on tour, then two years from now you could potentially get on by by qualifying and maybe get into an occasional wait list. I think that is completely reasonable. Yeah, because I think the way they do it in, 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 the ball, in ball golf is, I mean, they play like six or seven rounds that you have to go through and it's eliminating players as they go into each each round as they go along i think that's a good way of showing your tournament worth and if you're worth if you're got the mental acuity to, to be on the tour mm -hmm. yeah that's that sounds so, completely i i proposed uh the idea that if you wanted to play a beach here for example that you needed to have placed in the top third at a c tier if you want to play an a tier you need to have placed in the top third at a B tier. If you want to play, you know, and go go like that as qualifiers, it would be simple to do, and it would allow a lot of people to qualify 
But at the same time, it would mean that those people that I think his name was Wima, something Wima, wouldn't be allowed to come in and fill up the, the ranks with somebody who is arguably never going to cash, never going to place, never going to be interesting to watch. It was just there to be a, a walking and talking with the pros. That's that's why he was there. And that there are events that are, are great for being able to visit with top tier players, but they shouldn't be during the the round. <laughs> you shouldn't be you shouldn't be out there on the competitive field. So he played a I, couple I'm rounds a big, with him during that year and uh, his name is Lloyd. And he's a really nice guy. Yeah. 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 Real nice, but he shouldn't have been competing. <laughs> right. But <laughs> yeah. Most tournaments are, you know, three, some are four rounds. Do you think that that's something where, you know, everyone is invited? You have a $200, $300 entry fee, and everyone's allowed to play that first round, but only, you know, a certain number, you know, 50 to whatever number is allowed, you know, who qualifies uh, based off of a certain score is allowed to go into rounds two and three into the rest of the tournament. Okay. So a cutoff. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think it should be on, on the first round. Cause I mean, good players have bad first yeah. round. And they have that, that wouldn't be a fair to the players that are already worked hard to get to where they're Maple, at and be eliminated from a yeah, tournament. Maple Hill Maple Hill does something like that or has in the past where you play and at the, the final day, make the cut, get a t-shirt and, <laughs> you know, and you're getting ready to play. But yeah, it would have to be multiple rounds just because there is an element of luck involved um, where you might catch a bad break and, you know, somebody not as skilled would be able to take advantage of that. Yeah, see, look at the scores they put up at Northwoods this past year. There were some horrendous scores by really good players. <laughs> it would be like you would almost like ball golf where you would have two different courses going the first day, and then you would switch courses, and then a cut. That mm -hmm. way you could have more players, too, and that makes more sense to have so that you could have even more than 120 players. So, I mean, yeah, I like 120 that. players, I feel, is, is a huge field. If it's a disc golf pro tour event, it should be four rounds and there should be a cut after the second round. And, you know, maybe you take whatever last cash is plus another 20% or something like that. So that way, those who are just outside the cash still have an opportunity to cash. But I think on the final two rounds, if you're out of it by last cash by more than 20%, I just don't think there's a reason for you to be out there still playing. Horatio said, though, I think it would be very unique to have a tournament that you got knocked out on the first round though. I think that would be kind of neat actually. And it would actually, I, I feel like something like that could grow because you would be wanting not to get knocked out the first round in it. I think something like that kind of could be exciting actually thinking about it, but uh, there's nothing like that so far where there's, you get knocked out the first round, but I think that would be kind of exciting. So squid game disc golf, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, because <laughs> you know, well, that kind of a question I have and something, you know, coming into disc golf that I thought was very interesting that I didn't know that that's the way it worked. And it's something that, you know, I, I hope that changes in the future. You know, we're talking about having those unlucky, those lucky rounds worlds. It's four rounds, uh, correct? And yeah, so uh, what it is nowadays. So, so you nowadays, know, anyone. Yeah. 
The open field, the open field isn't skilled enough to play the eight rounds or nine <laughs> rounds that the rest of the fields have to play. Yeah, well, I guess just my, my thing is anyone can come in and have a good weekend and then, you know, they are the world champion. There's nothing besides that weekend that kind of makes them, I guess that's the issue I have, you know, just from other sports. It doesn't matter what kind of season you had. It doesn't matter what you're going to do the rest of the season. As long as you come in and you're focused and you're lucky and you have a hot, hot weekend, you can be the world champion. I feel like there's a problem with that. I think that's, um, I agree. They have awards player of the year who was the yeah. most over the year. But I, I think sports would be far less fun if we didn't have that element of on any given weekend. So personally, as a viewer, I would like to see it. Cause I can tell you right now, going into the 2022 season, I can count on one hand, the players of the year candidates but there's 50 people that can win worlds. That's to me as a viewer would be far more exciting. I like it. Uh, I can say from personal experience that one of the biggest kicks I got out of winning worlds was just thinking about how many people around the planet were saying my name like this. Hosville? <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. You okay, know. so I'm, the, the one thing I don't like it, it's another one of those things you don't like where the sport's going. You talk about playing, say, three to four rounds determining worlds. What's up with that? You know, if, if you got, say, uh, the Masters, I think we're probably going to play about eight rounds and we're going to have a final with the final nine the last day. So how come the, the open players – who um, are supposed to be the better, younger, tougher, all that good stuff. How come they don't get to uh, enjoy playing two rounds a day every day for a week and then final nine to finish it? Everybody else does. Are those prima donnas unable to handle it because they're not skilled enough? Their conditioning's not there. I mean, what is the excuse? I think that some of the conditioning and being able to do that every twice a day or whatever is part of the world championships. There's places that you go where being able to walk up and down the hills is a challenge, especially at Greg and I's age. <laughs> but it, it makes a difference. If you're not able to maintain a level of physical fitness up there, you can still go and play on a golf course. I can play one round anywhere. And maybe do good. And then I'd be tore up. Or play two rounds, be knocked down the next day. So I, I'd love to see these young guys who are real fit and all that good stuff go out there and grind. I don't, I don't like it that they only play four rounds because there is that element of luck. And the less rounds they play, the more chances they're going to get lucky. It's it not going to be a well-rounded... It takes longer to edit the videos with all those extra rounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no. I, I, I totally I totally agree. I mean, like, just thinking about this last season, Paul McBeth had a much better season than James Conrad. But, you know, there's that element of luck, and he threw that, in, that shot in 
so therefore he was world champion. And then, you know, also, you know, it, you know, there's a little bit of luck with every <laughs> shot that goes in the basket, every ace, there's a little bit of luck, um, you know, because to me, you know, like, what's the difference between the title, you know, of a USDGC champion, Maple Hill champion and the world championship, like, there's not a difference of rounds, it's different courses. But to me, as someone that's coming into the sport, the world champion didn't do anything differently that they would have had to do to do to win the previous tournament on the pro tour. It was just the title. Like there's no difference in it. So to play devil's advocate, if we, if, if the world championships were a nine and a half round tournament, that would mean we would have lost the greatest moment in the history of disc golf. That moment happened. The, the opportunities that a four round tournament allows for if not, let's watch Eagle, Calvin, Ricky, and Paul battle, you know, nine rounds in. It's oh, also okay. so I, I, I like thing that I've noticed. Go ahead. I, I've noticed that the style of courses favors a certain type of thrower. You put those guys up in Vermont playing that wooded course, and you're not looking at those those numbers from the long throwers coming in on the top, it's not happening. You see a whole different group of faces up there at the top level, people that manipulate their disc better and hit those lines. And that's at least a facet of our sport that is going by the wayside on TV. I tell you know? people, it's definitely, the style of play varies so much. I've, I've had this conversation with so many good players where I tell them, Go out to North Carolina, you're going to get smoked by the 970 league players. And they think I'm joking. And I'm like, you guys have no yeah. idea that those players are on the 5,700 foot wooded courses. But those players go to, hey, if those players go play against you in Oklahoma or Kansas, they're getting smoked, right? Different game. Absolutely. And, and without showcasing those different, those different qualities, you really aren't showing a well rounded game. If, if you're going to be the world champion, you should be able to play more than one course once yeah. a day for three days and get a title. That's, I mean, there are some great courses. I, I'm not knocking the courses at all, but one course normally will not showcase all of the skills that would make for a good golfer. Okay. This is kind of where, and if you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably saw me saying something along these lines here's our comparison to f1 which uh if you know what f1 is you know what i'm about to say but pretty much i think that a reasonable solution to this is is you have different courses like we're saying you know you have those wooded courses you have the tour but at the end of the tour is when you have that final like world championship push right so i guess the idea going on in my head right now is let's say you 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 have the tour as it is you're getting these points to be the world champion and then there's like a cutoff for the final tournament and only a certain number get to go to that tournament in which then they could compete for, you know, maybe that tournament has points doubled or maybe everyone gets reset to zero. And then you still have that luck factor of, you know, maybe you're Nathan queen and you're one of the last ones to get into the tournament and you somehow go out and end up winning the tournament and you're the world champion. Is that maybe a possibility or am I just pulling on straws here? Nathan Queen definitely made a statement going out doing what he did. I, I really respect that game. 
But at the same time, I'm we already have that title where you go out and you get points throughout the year on different events. I'm talking about one event. If you're going to have one event that's called the World Championship, it needs to be more than three or four rounds. Yeah. yeah to differentiate it from any other event that goes on on any given weekend. I mean, we're, we're taking a week off. We're going to go to go play and you're going to play three, four rounds and that's going to determine the title. That sounds crazy. Yeah. I mean, what, what is the difference between doing that and going anywhere else for a weekend? That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly my argument. And, you know, I, hopefully that's something that can change, but I feel like there's right now to me, you know, other people you know, are going to have their own opinion. Yes. Anyone can come out and win, but I don't feel like there's anything special currently about winning a world championship as opposed to winning USDGC or winning Jonesboro or winning any other tournament. It's just a title at this time. And I feel like it needs to be something that an amateur could not do, you know, playing two rounds in a day, maybe two, you know, a long course and a wooded course and doing that, you know, three times, three days in a row, because that's going to show the difference. You know, I can't go and play a round of basketball like LeBron James. He gets paid millions of dollars to have the stamina and work out every day. You know, people are saying, oh, yeah, I could do that, too, if I got paid to work out every single day. No, you couldn't. So I think we need to have a tournament, something where even if I took off two weeks to prepare, I would not be able to compete in that tournament because the level of difficulty and stress on the body that it would take that normal people would not be able to do you know right now world championship most ams could be able to compete that you know they wouldn't place but they would be able to do that so i feel like it's nothing that special remember that's only for the pro world yes all the other worlds are still playing seven eight nine rounds they still do all the masters do grandmasters all of us still play multiple rounds in a day. And then, uh, honestly, we did play some single round at big courses. But they got to be really giant courses that are going to take, you know, five, six hours to complete. You're not going to go out and play four or three-hour rounds somewhere and, and think that that was all day. Why, why would a three-hour round be good enough to be considered for a, a one of the four days that you would play? That's crazy. Anybody? <laughs> Greg? How many, how many, how many uh, rounds was the world when you won it? Me? Yes. Uh, God, in 87. I, was, yeah, I think we played like seven, seven rounds, seven. something like that. Seven or eight. I'd actually, I'd have, I, I don't recall now, to be honest with you. <laughs> It definitely was multiple. It was multiples for sure. It was at least two a day. I think that they ran it for three or four days. So it was, you know, it was definitely seven to nine, I would say. I was just looking at the tentative course schedule for this year's Masters World Disc Golf Championships. And it's five rounds at a final nine. And that's the smallest I think I've ever played at a world championship. Yeah, because it's Eureka and Northwood. Yeah. <laughs> Not even playing the best course in Peoria, McNaughton. That's where the finals are. What'd you say, Johnny? You're getting bleeped out. In Peoria. I agree. 
Yeah, McNaughton's amazing. Yeah, we played two rounds of McNaughton. The final singles round and then the final nine and uh, the Friday before are all at McNaughton. Oh, for your division? Yeah. Oh, you're lucky. Yeah, I got to wait another year before yeah. I'm in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't think my course record of McNaughton's been broke yet. Yeah. What is it? Uh, shot 46 back in 2002. Okay. It That's broke the old course record by six strokes. But in, in all fairness, yeah. discs flew way further back then. <laughs> <laughs> I think this has been a fantastic conversation so far. And, you know, I know we are starting to get a little close on time here. So I want to ask one little, one final question, one kind of final thought for everyone before we get out of here. If I'm a new disc golfer, if I've only been disc golfing for, you know, less than a year, what would you say is your number one tip for getting better if you if you could give one piece of advice to a new disc golfer what would that piece of advice be well one thing i've been saying <laughs> lately is that overstable is overrated and understable is underrated put that on a t-shirt i like that yeah there you go give me a residuals i got one so I, biggest I tip and i think the most out. important thing you can do in every disc golf shot is to follow through that's my tip for sure follow through figure out what that is on every shot and do that. Which if you want more advice on that, go listen to our episode with Johnny McRae. It was a very good one. We talk a lot in very in-depth about that. So if you haven't listened to that, you might want to go check that out. Ron, what, what you got for us? Well, we, we all talked about starting out with lids, with, with a disc that's not uh, ultimate or not a Frisbee disc golf disc. I, I think you just need to get a Frisbee and go out with one of your friends right off the bat for a beginner. The best way to learn and get rapid feedback is to throw a lot. And by controlling a whammo or one of those other things, you get a really good grasp of how to hyzer a disc and you get really quick feedback on whether you controlled it well or whether you didn't. And that was, that's a really simple thing that you could do that's going to improve your game really quickly. Yeah, I, I like that. That's definitely one that I think I'm going to try out on one of my friends. And maybe just before we play the round, just throw like a putter around with each other for like 10 minutes and just yep. maybe, maybe warm up a little bit that way. That was really good, Ron. Brian, what, what do you got? What's your number one tip you would give? Use one disc. Learn to throw it straight. Straight is the hardest shot in all of disc golf. You can throw straight with that one disc. Get another one and learn to throw that one straight. And just work your way up from there. Yeah, nice. Johnny Sias, man. I remember Johnny Sias going, man, I ought to be able to throw a Frisbee straight. <laughs> you ain't wrong. Scott, what would right, you say your say? number one tip is? I, I think if the quickest accelerator is to find a local pro in your area that does lessons and invest a little bit of money in yourself and pay that pro to teach, uh, to help to help coach you. The thing about disc golf teaching is there's a wide variety of approaches to get to where you want to go. There's certainly different levels of experience and certainly different skill levels at teaching. There's a wide variety. But the thing that almost every disc golf teacher has in common or every pro is we agree 95% of what the end result should look like. So regardless of their, whether they're a new teacher or a, an experienced teacher, 
they're going to be driving towards the ultimate, the, the same ultimate goal of how to throw correctly. And it's very hard to coach yourself because if you're an inexperienced player, you're not qualified to coach other people. Well, then what makes you think that watching yourself on video would allow you to coach yourself? It's you're, you're coaching a person, even if that's you, you need a third party to do that. So there's local pros in every town that are all going to be helpful. That's what I would say. It's the biggest way. Invest money in yourself. Yeah, perfect. I mean, like that's like anything else that you want to learn or anything else in life. You know, if you want to improve or get better at it, you seek a mentor. You seek someone that has done it, someone that's doing it like you would like to. And you seek their advice, you know, how you can help them out. You know, maybe some players don't, you know, that aren't charging money. How can you help them out? You know, find other ways, you know, be helpful to them. But I love those tips. And Really, we do appreciate you guys coming on. You know, we went almost two hours. So thank you so much for talking to us. We really do appreciate it. Good luck to, you know, you know, Scott, you're going on tour. John McCray, you're going to be doing some touring. Ron, we'll be seeing you here around locally. And I'm sure you'll be doing some big tournaments. And Greg and Brian, best of luck to you guys. I'm sure all of you guys are itching. We're less than a month away, you know, from everything kicking on. You know, I'm sure you guys are excited, but we wish you guys nothing but the best. You know, hope to see you guys on tour this is my fifth tournament coming up this year so here's one of the most exciting storylines that is happening is that will brian schweberger get win 700 this weekend okay somewhere around there i went went, brian when do you get to win number thousand is that on your radar have you done the math i still got to play 250 tournaments just to play a thousand all right and that's the that's the storyline is when you hit win thousand. <laughs> it's kind of like when Greg was gonna play his thousandth course when there was like twelve hundred courses in in the world. Yeah, you know? I think I think I actually at one point uh, when uh, the ninety four directory came out and said now boasting over four hundred and fifty courses, and at that point I had played four hundred. So I had yeah. played like 80 something, 87. We'll just use 87 because I like that number. But I played 87% of all courses in existence. So that was oh, wow. what he's going to do again, I don't think. Well, oh, I, I'm going to have to play the trump card there and trump you on this one. In 1976, I played 100% of the permanent disc golf courses on planet Earth. <laughs> ah. They're saying. Oh, yeah, but for some reason... It wasn't plural. <laughs> yeah. That's a technical. Stop being a lawyer. <laughs> I want, I want, like, I, you guys, this is what a, what a great group to have. I have so much respect for every single person here that, that you brought on. I love you guys to death. You're all heroes of mine. We, you know, we all share something being older players that uh, I think there's a bond there. But just I love you guys, man. Thank you for for doing this. I really enjoyed it. Love you too, brother. Likewise. Bunch of studs here. And uh, thanks, uh, Quentin and Horatio, for having us on. And uh, hope everybody has a great season. And, uh, yeah, good luck this weekend, Brian. Thank you, man. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me and all of us uh, to this uh, podcast. It was great fun, uh, very enjoyable, and great seeing all you guys. Thank you for listening to the Chain Clankers podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Chain Clankers and hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to us from so you never miss another episode.